0: Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kiron.
1: i I'm Bethan. I'm
0: Jacob. And you join us for the first part of our look at series six. Now I'm going to make a prediction now at the very top of this episode. On recording, I will not cut this out. I pledge now not to cut this out. Bearing in mind that we haven't like discussed our opinions much in depth before, this is the episode where we will differ the most. Possibly of every episode we ever do. Because uh, I think we broadly agree on most things. And we have broadly agreed in terms of the episodes we've done so far. Mm. Uh, in terms of the general shape of like our rankings, if not the actual, the exact position of everything. But I think Series 6 is probably, uh, and maybe like even the Matt Smith era in general, but especially Series 6 is probably where we kind of differ from each other the most. As I think will potentially become apparent as we go. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. I'm going to need a SWAT team ready to mobilize street level maps covering all of Florida a pot of coffee 12 jammy dodgers and a fez
0: get him his maps so to set us up then um, let's talk first about because it's our first time looking at the 11th Doctor Matt Smith we've looked at Eccleston in depth we've looked at all of Eccleston in fact Mm -hmm. Uh, we've had a brief encounter with David Tennant at Christmas but of course we will be coming back, Jane. But this is our first time looking at Smith, uh, apart from like mentioning him in passing in previous episodes. So, broadly speaking, how do we feel about the 11th Doctor now?
1: I think I'm realising, especially to be honest, watching this series back I'm kind of realising the extent to which I'm not a massive fan of the 11th Doctor. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I have an issue with his sort of characterization is very childish, but also a hot young doctor who fucks. Yes. Because we yes. get that, like, straight away in this series, where mm. he's naked and popping out of a lady's oh, yeah. under oh. a lady's dress. But then he's also, like, mm. uh, he's also, like, sometimes comically naive, so I think it's mm. a bit inconsistent mm. in that way. Mm. But I think I also just don't necessarily see what the the likability hook for his doctor is like i don't really i don't really gel with him i assume for some the stuff that happens that sometimes they're trying to do a like moral ambiguity kind of thing with him Mm. like uh, sort of oh is it really fair of him to manipulate amy in this way and stuff but i just don't think it works and so it just comes off as him being really manipulative Or it just comes off a bit strangely. It doesn't seem to quite go one way or the other. It doesn't quite get away from Wacky Doctor we all love. And it doesn't doesn't quite stay Wacky Doctor we all love, and it doesn't quite go to the depths that you would need it to go to do something really interesting. And so we're left in this weird place where I'm not really sure where to locate my feelings, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get you. Um, I know... People who really like Smith uh, argue that more than any other doctor, he kind of covers a lot of the bases uh, uh, from like the kind of the wacky extremes to the more kind of darker, more manipulative kind of thing, which is obviously on some level kind of harkening back to McCoy. And also like with hindsight pointing forward somewhat, at least to Capaldi, Mm. although Capaldi uh, is very different in many ways.
1: See, I think the thing is, and I will, I am going to let Jacob say his bit, don't (laughs) worry. But I think the thing is that when I was first watching it, I just didn't understand what they were going for. And now having seen the Capaldi era, I understand a bit better Mm. what I think was being aimed for. Mm. So I think I get a bit more of what's going on. But I think that without that context, Mm. which you can't be assumed to be having, it's just even more bewildering than what it is.
2: Yeah, I think... I don't know, again, like I wouldn't say I'm a massive fan of his Doctor. I'm probably not quite as negative on him, though, either. But the complication with that is I don't really like Tennant, particularly. Mm. And I think that changes things. Because mm-hmm. I kind of went into Smith being very sceptical, wanting him to be good. Because mm. I wasn't pleased with the previous one. And mm. I think a lot of people love Tennant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Uh, Understandably, found it quite difficult to adjust to Smith, but also I think there's a problem like what you were saying about that there's that kind of contradiction where he's both childlike but also he's a kind of uh, Casanova mm. figure, yeah. and I think some of that is overhang from how successful Tennant was, yeah, and he, I would cause agree. he kind of introduces that to an extent. And it's something yeah. I don't like about Tennant's Doctor, and I don't like it about Smith's either. Mm. And that scene that you raised, the one that opens uh, The Impossible Astronaut, is yeah. one of the prime examples of a scene that I do not like mm. <laughs> for that reason. And yeah, I, I feel like they almost felt compelled to give him aspects of Tennant's character, particularly in the fifth series, uh, the yeah. series before. They almost like give him the same lines sometimes. Mm. All that being said, what I do quite like about his character is some of the... Some of the more subtle eccentricities. I like the kind of like the 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 Patrick Troughton esque kind of uh, sort of hand gestures and and mm. the the professorial element of it.
0: He is supposed to have based his performance quite heavily on Troughton. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I like all of that, and I think those elements for me kind of get at an element of the character in terms of its ex- ex- eccentricity more than Tennant did. Mm-hmm. I have an issue with Tennant's Doctor because I don't think he's eccentric. I just think he's some kind of like Casanova figure, and I don't, I don't get any of the eccentricity from him that I get from someone like Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, Tennant just goes over the top and shouts, and that's mm-hmm. about it. But Smith's Doctor, I think, there's a contradictory element again where he's got those kind of subtleties. But then that also gets spoiled by these moments where he does go extremely over the top. Mm. And I'm sure we're going to cover them at some point. But um, yeah, I have mixed feelings. I wouldn't say I'm massively enthused, Mm. but I'm also, I wouldn't say I'm his biggest critic either.
0: I think i probably land somewhere between the two of you, actually. So actually, I really liked Tennant when when his episodes were airing. I've... Revised that opinion, uh, I must say. In the last number of years, I'm not a, a fan of Tennant at all anymore, and so I think I found Smith slightly alienating for that reason, mm-hmm. and I found him hard to adjust to, and I never quite got used to him. I think
3: mm-hmm. while he
0: was the Doctor mm-hmm. on some level, mm-hmm. which is very strange in itself, because with I think especially when you're young, with when every new Doctor comes along, there is a period of adjustment. And sometimes, like quite a lot of the time, the show will sort of hang a lantern on that and will sort of play with it, uh, this kind of period of defamiliarization. Like, they sort of do it, or they they do it in an incredibly misconceived way in The Twin Dilemma, for instance. Mm -hmm. But I think do it much, much more successfully in something like Deep Breath, where the point of that episode is it's Clara trying to get used to the idea of this new Doctor. Mm -hmm. But somehow I just never quite gelled with Smith. And I've actually found it quite difficult to rationalize why. I, I agree that, like, there is this strange disconnect between the, as, as you say, the hot young doctor who fucks and the kind of the childlike quality because he's very childlike in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh, and is kind of and this is an aspect of, of his doctor that I quite like, but is shown to be very good with children uh, mm-hmm. in a number of episodes um, but yeah, there's a, there's something strange going on there in the, in the connect between those two. I mean, it is worth mentioning that, like, unlike Tenant, who, like, it becomes the running joke that he's going around snogging everyone. A lot of where that comes from with Smith is specifically his relationship with River Song. Mm-hmm. So, while there's a kind of there's a libidinal energy there, it's it's directed in a way that Tennant's wasn't, necessarily.
1: I mean, to an extent, I think that's true, but he does also have him and River have a very complicated relationship, yeah. and it's yeah. an open one to a large extent. Mm. And also, um, there's,
2: Smith, there's moments with Smith, isn't there, or periods where like he goes away and he does other things. Yeah, and There's yeah, kind yeah. of implications yeah. that he's casting over him. Yeah, it's he mentions like
1: Matahari in another series. Oh yeah, I can't remember which <laughs> yeah. one. Mm. But in, in a sort of like yowzer way, you know, and yeah. he says yowzer. Yeah. God, that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know it's kind of like deliberately done to be the worst, but like...
0: There, there's something of that that kind of rubs me up the wrong way, I must say. of mm. uh, of the kind of, While I like the eccentricity to an extent, I think Smith occasionally pushes it from eccentric to zany yeah. in a mm. way that really annoys me. Mm. Uh, and the thing is, uh, Matt Smith is a very good actor. I, I would not deny that for a moment. I mean, T- David Tennant is a very good actor. I just don't like him as the Doctor very much. Mm. With Smith, even when I don't like what he's doing, I appreciate his performance choices. I think there are quite a few um, points in this series, which I may or may not point out as we go, where I think he's very, very good. Even if I don't necessarily like what he's doing, I think he is doing it very well mm. and very skillfully. He he's very good at shifting b- between tones.
1: I tell you what, I will say for him, which I think I should probably have acknowledged off the bat. I appreciate the fact that, even though I think there's some extent to which they were casting him to try and replicate the success they had with Tenants, mm-hmm. I think I appreciate the extent to which Matt Smith is doing something different with the role. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that is very admirable because I do think I did think this at the time, and I still think this now. I think that the reason why they went with such a young actor Mm. was because they realised that like Tennant had this sort of like sex symbol status in the fandom, yeah, and and they were like think, and and there was probably some kind of decision making that like wasn't necessarily in the hands Mm. of the showrunners or anything, but like that was like, oh, we need to get another Mm. young-ish actor because that's what people expect from the show now.
2: Well, it's interesting you should say that, because um, I remember watching... You know, the, the confidential where they revealed... Yeah, Christmas yeah, doctor. I remember. Yeah. I can't remember if it was on that or somewhere else where I saw it, but they th- there's a point where they interview Moffat, and he says that he wanted an older, gr- more grandfatherly Doctor. Oh, okay. And then he got a cast list of under 35s or something like that. Oh, so, okay. He mm. clearly was that kind that's of thing. Exact, that's exactly yeah. that's
1: exactly what I had yeah. suspected yeah. happened. Yeah. And I think, to be fair, t- to Matt Smith as an actor, I think that it could have gone a lot, a lot worse yes. with that mm, yeah, kind of right. like briefing. Mm. And I think that he does do some he does do some different stuff. I don't necessarily mm. always like the stuff mm. he's doing yeah. or the scripts that he's given to do it with. But it's it's not just a straightforward like copy paste of the of the tenant era. yeah and i not. think that that's something to be commended really mm.
0: yeah mm. the thing that people often say of him is that he plays old very well and mm. uh, which i think is true and quite interesting in itself people sometimes people say it in a vaguely patronizing way as if like it's strange for someone in their 20s to be able to like play an old figure or like or someone who is especially in this series like facing down mortality um, as if he's not just like an actor, mm. and that is not in fact his job.
1: <gasps> acting, acting. <laughs>
0: um, speaking of acting, let's move on to—I don't know what, what kind of segue is that. Speaking Karen, of
1: acting, let's move on to <laughs> actors. <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: because uh, because Karen Gillen is also an actor. Whoa. Um. Yes. So Amy, this is obviously this is Amy's second series. In fact, it's of. All of the people we're going to be talking about here, it's no, it's none of their first series, although it's with pretty much all of them, they're in kind of a slightly different role here, mm. one way or another. Uh, but what do we think about Amy, either in general or in this series?
2: Yeah, I quite like Amy. I, I, I quite like Amy, and I think Karen Gillan, like plays her well. Mm. I do have an issue with the way in which they often kind of sexualise her and stuff especially when she first comes into it mm. and it's like they have a dress as a kissogram and all this kind yeah. of thing i think yeah i think
0: that's kind of something you get quite a bit in series 5 from yeah. kind of less so it's going less, on yeah but less yeah, so yeah. yeah. she's the legs yeah.
1: to the nose <laughs> yeah. mrs robinson oh god um, but
2: yeah no i think she's i think she's quite a, i think she's quite a strong character mm. um, i think her and rory work really well together i think she gets Like, well, in particular, I'm thinking of The Girl Who Waited. Like, she gets some really good stuff in that. I think she's got, like, a really good performance in that episode Mm -hmm. in particular. But, yeah, no, I think she's good. (laughs) I don't really have a lot to say.
1: (laughs) Again, (laughs) I, I, like Amy, I think that I'm I'm appreciating anew watching this series back how good an actor Karen Gillan is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I think is something that I hadn't really given her enough credit for before she does some really interesting stuff in particularly The Girl Who Waited with mm. some like not necessarily amazing material all the time. Mm. I, I think that she does a good job of getting, giving us a sense of, of who Amy is. I find it weird in this series and the following series, the whole Amy becoming a model plotline yeah. confuses me a little bit just because it's not something that she'd really given any indication mm. of wanting mm. to do. Mm. And it seems kind of like she just gets plopped into that because that's like a pretty person job. Or something. And also, I find the tagline hilarious where it's like, Petrichor, the girl who waited, because that makes sense only if you watch Doctor Who. Mm. So the people it's, who um, make that perfume... The
0: girl who's tired of waiting.
1: Oh, yeah, for the girl who's tired of waiting, which doesn't make any sense. It makes
0: more sense, I think, than the girl who waited would. But yeah. yeah. No, I, I know what you mean.
1: But yeah, I feel like that slightly does her a disservice. But I really mm. like her in The Wedding of River Song as well. I think that's, that's yeah, interesting. Actually. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because actually that's that's a good point. Because um, The Girl Who Waited is one that rightly gets pointed to a lot as evidence of her being very good. And playing essentially two different characters mm-hmm. within the same story as well. But Wedding of River Song, she's doing something kind of similar mm. but more subtly. Mm. In terms of you've got two essentially essentially two universes going on yeah. and in a way subtly different versions of amy uh, and i think she's very very good in that as well
1: i do think amy gets a bit of a raw deal by this series but i'll probably talk about that more as we go on mm. but um yeah i like amy i, I like amy a, a good deal and i like karen gillen as an actress a hell of a lot <laughs> yeah
0: yeah Yeah, I amazingly going to add that I like Amy and I like Karen Gillan.
1: What? (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, I think...
1: The The episode we most disagree on. I know.
0: Um, The thing with this series is series five was very much about Amy's character arc. And series six, she kind of ends up slightly on the the back foot a few times. Mm. I think what's interesting with Amy and with Rory uh, who we'll get on to in a minute is the the sense of a kind of stability and a kind of mundane stability that they increasingly come to represent as companions and um, which is something that is very unusual and pointedly unusual in doctor who because previously companions essentially left to get married mm. um, or got paired off with someone somewhat arbitrarily in some cases. So there's something weirdly subversive about having a married couple on the TARDIS, which kind of, comes up uh, again and again in this series. That I mean, I don't want to reduce Amy to her marital status in talking about her, but like I do think that is worth mentioning.
1: Although the Pond Williams thing does come up a y- lot.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that. And there is <laughs> one, there is one instance in the series where I really want to talk about that. Okay. But yeah, speaking of Williams, then that's a better segue. Rory.
1: I like Rory. I will say that I don't necessarily think that Arthur Darvill has the same amount of range as some mm. of the other actors. Although I've heard he's good in other things, and to be fair, I've only seen him in Doctor Who. But I still like Rory a lot. I just mm. it might just be that he doesn't get the same kind of storylines that really plumb the emotional depths that mm. Amy can get in this series. What I do like is the fact that the fact that he is a nurse comes up quite a lot Mm. in like sometimes quite subtle ways where it's more how he will react to a situation. Like if somebody is upset or injured, he's Mm. the one that goes to them and checks on them, which I really like because I don't know if that's, um, I don't know how they managed to get it so consistent, but I really think that it's a nice note to have, especially because I think that although we've had, I feel like when they had... Martha as the companion. She used her the fact that she's a train a, a junior doctor sometimes, but a few not times, consistently. But yeah, yeah.
3: Mm.
1: And again, we have we have Yaz who's a police officer, which is mentioned, and it's mentioned that she has certain kinds of training, but we don't really get that's not really sort of showcased mm. or even in a put across in a subtle way. And so I mm. do really like how it's not just oh he's a nurse that's his job. Hmm. it's a consistent character thing for him the Hmm. fact that he's the kind of person that would go into that profession really feeds into his character as a sort of caring protective guy and i i do i do really like that
0: yeah i think that's that's something i'm interested in tracking actually because i think rory and specifically rory's status as a nurse as it were is something that's really important or really central to some of the themes of this series and to some of the things I particularly want to get out as as we're going forward. So yeah, I I agree with everything you've just said. I do think while I agree with you that he doesn't get the kind of he doesn't get to kind of plumb the emotional depths that Amy does, I also think that's kind of the point to some mm. extent because I think he's meant to represent a very kind of some a, a very kind of calm influence within the plot.
1: Is he the role that like the wife normally has in other things where they just have to stand there and be like Oh, no, I'm so sorry that's happening to you, darling. Well, but he does more than that. But, you know... Yes, actually. He's got a more kind of proactive. support role to yeah. Amy's drama yeah. in some ways, mm. which is quite an odd thing to see. In yeah,
0: and I think, character. again, it kind of it points back to the nurse thing mm. as well. To um, show my hands slightly, the reason I think this is interesting is I think... Rory represents a kind of almost idealized kind of masculinity, which represents things that like stereotypically masculinity is almost at the opposite end of the axis from. Mm. And so I think he's a he's a crucial part of an interrogation of what that means. And and of kind of, to an extent, gender roles and that's going on throughout this series. But as I say, we'll get to that as we go. Mm. Uh, Jacob, What's your take on Rory? I don't really have I uh, I don't really have a, a distinctive take
2: apart from the fact that I again like Rory. <laughs> if there's something that I'm not keen on, it's plot related rather than uh, rather than in terms of his character, which is the number of times that he ties. Yeah, and the fact that, that becomes a joke, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah he's he's good. He's he's likable, as you say. He's that kind of like sort of that steady influence. Mm-hmm. Um, The other thing that I kind of, I take issue with, but I I can see arguments against it and I can see how there's more self-reflexivity around it is um, the whole, like, the girl who waited thing and he's the Roman centurion who stood by the box and, you know, Mm. waited for for however long and, like, comes after her in uh, A Good Man Goes to War. Uh, But, like you say, I think there are... Because I think that kind of plays into, like, you know, like a man saving the woman or whatever. Mm. But I think there are ways in which that is kind of reversed and complicated. Yes. Um, so I'm once I'm entirely
0: comfortable with it, but I mm. I can see how that might work. But no. yeah. Yeah, no, um, I, I get that. And uh, I think I think especially when we when we get to Good Man Goes to War, I think there's there's some interesting things to explore mm. there. Mm. Um so we've looked at Amy, we've looked at Rory, now the union of the Amy and the Rory. Which is the and river. the
1: TARDIS, or the Time Vortex. Yeah. That police car just heard about the bit where uh, River creeps on Rory accidentally. Mmm. When she's, like, saying he looks good in his Roman soldier uniform. Oh, God, I
2: forgot oh, yeah. about that.
3: Anyway, <laughs>
1: um, River.
0: Yes, so, River. <laughs> Who wants to go first?
2: Who can go first, I suppose? Um... <laughs> I do not like River Song at all. I think she is one of the worst things about the programme in this period. She first came in, in uh, Science in the Library, with Tennant. And I when she came in then, it wasn't too bad. And I was kind of like, I can see how this could be an interesting concept. You know, she's mm-hmm. kind of like, she knows him, but he doesn't know her. It's kind of an interesting reversal of like almost like the godlike Doctor Who knows everything. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting concept. And then the more she appeared, the more irritating she became. Um, I find her totally over the top. I hate the hello sweetie thing. I think it's awful. I just don't like anything about her at all. Uh, She just—I feel like there's a lack of. Subtlety, which is what I always come back to with a new series, that represent and in that sense she represents some of the worst impulses of the modern program for me. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'm sure we'll I'll go into it in more detail as we as we go along. But <laughs> yeah, no. not a fan.
1: So I have tried. I'm really trying to like River Song <laughs> more, but I have to say I'm not a fan, and I've sort of accepted her in the show and there are episodes that she's in that I think are good and that I quite like her in but unfortunately this series does not really showcase many of those Mm. moments for me and I also have never really got over the fact that she's Amy and Rory's child and how Weird and slightly gross, I find that to be, in retrospect, considering Mm. there's the whole bit where, like, Amy kisses the Doctor, who's then her son-in-law in in the future, and River makes the comments about Rory looking good in his Roman Roman Centurion outfit, and then Rory's her dad. And it's all, like, a mess. And also, I I don't really like how whenever River's around, it just devolves into loads of flirting with um, the Doctor. And it's all, like, him being like ooh, you bad, bad girl, and she's all saying stuff to him. And also, I feel like, in a way, when she's written at her worst, it's as if they tried to write a strong female character, but in the way that, like, she's just really sexually aggressive in, like, quite a worrying way. Like, Mm. not, like, I don't know. It's just, like, she's really sexual all the time, and that's that's kind Mm. of... Almost the extent of her personality when she's written at her worst, worst. And that's what I have to say about River, unfortunately.
0: Like, I would say I agree with pretty much everything you've just said. But I agree with everything you've just said up to the point of about probably the beginning of A Good Man Goes to War. From that point, I think she acquires a different status uh, and potentially a more interesting one and uh, not so much in let's kill hitler actually because uh, let's Kill hitler is doing something a bit different with her character but i think her appearance at the end of good man goes to war and then again in quite a bit of uh, wedding of river song and from then on actually when she turns up in the name of the doctor for instance she plays a different role because up to that point she has been like oh this is fun mystery who like Swans in every now and then and says, hello, sweetie, and talks about spoilers and uh, all of this stuff that I don't particularly like either. But I think from then on, she becomes this strange, like, haunting presence because we know how she dies from the off, which I think is a really interesting way to approach a character when you know where they're going right from the beginning. And so... She acquires this strange role and it's an interesting way to write a character in a time travel show as well. Backwards to a certain extent. I don't love her as a character. I don't even necessarily know if I like her as a character. But I think she plays some interesting roles and she involves playing with some interesting ideas. I'm not always a fan of the execution. We will definitely talk about some instances of that as we go. But I think there are interesting things at play and it's one of those things that like I'm glad the show did. Did this kind of... This character whose narrative is non-linear. Because I think it's one of those things that, like, if you're doing a time travel show, it's the kind of thing you have to do at some point, surely. And you have to see what you can wring out of that. Because otherwise, what's the point?
1: Oh, I just wanted to drop in to say I really hate the bespoke psychopath thing. Oh, yeah, that's... The phrase bespoke psychopath in particular. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Because it... Is not what she is, and doesn't make any sense because she's not a psychopath. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is she? Um.
1: Well. Is that what a psychopath um, is?
2: I mean, like she's supposed to be trained to kill the doctor, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean she's a psychopath.
0: No, I. There's an argument to be made that when we see her in uh, Let's Kill Hitler, she at least shows uh, traces of psychopathy. Mm. Um. But the, the problem is that psychopathy is so kind of ill-defined, mm. in how, mm. especially in how it's approached in popular culture most of the time, mm. that mm. it's just a very difficult thing to kind of throw around. Yeah. But yeah, I think maybe we can get onto that later, actually.
2: Yeah. I have to say as well, I, I definitely agree with your point about the constant flirting. That's mm. something that I didn't say, but that also really gets on my nerves, because as you know, I've mentioned it many times, <laughs> I do not like romance in, in Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, the Doctor specifically. I don't my yeah. like companion romance; that's different. But like, I don't like the Doctor having romantic entanglements.
1: Do I... we think that the that the Eleventh Doctor and River have chemistry?
2: Do you mean like as actors or like just like as
1: actors and as characters? Do we believe mm. that they're like a, that they that they're really a thing? Not because really. I I don't
0: neither do i i
1: don't think i ever really bought into the idea that Mm. these are two people who love each other and who really mean all of these like sexual comments that they're making to each other in like i didn't believe that they actually want to like you know
0: that's true the problem is with hindsight the husbands of river song exists Mm. and in the husbands of river song Capaldi and Alex Kingston have much more chemistry mm. in the course of like an hour. Mm. Than oh yeah, Smith and Kingston do. That's that's
2: <laughs> the actually. I have to say, the husbands of River Song is probably the only time I've watched an episode centered around her and really mm. actually enjoyed it. I w- um, and thought it was interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree um, in part at least, but uh, I think that is probably the time where she works best. I wonder if that's partly because that was like. It had been a couple of years since we'd seen her. Mm, Mm. mm, Possibly, yeah. Um, Because I do feel that she gets quite oversaturated in the Smith era. And I get why, because that's the period where the show is doing the River Song storyline. So of course Mm. she shows up, and she needs to show up at certain points. We need to have seen a fair bit of her before we get into the sort of, well, the the Series 6 plotline, actually.
1: Mm. And it can't be the last time we see her before we've really seen her. I guess they had to try and build up a believable relationship. And I don't want to be mean about the chemistry, the lack, well, the lack of chemistry too much because I feel like it could come across as being like, oh, well, you know, there's an age gap because Mm. Alex Kingston's a bit older than he is. Mm. When we see the when in reality we see those kinds of age gaps with the genders reversed all the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm. But at the same time, I'm not sure that they really click. Mm. Um, also, I find all the references to Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate kind of weird, but also kind of funny, given the time period in the first Yeah, episode. I think that's kind of the point. I don't yeah. really know what I feel about that, but the fact that they kind of have to keep referring to this very famous media in which uh, an older woman seduces a younger man kind of is a bit of a weird thing to keep Kind of hanging a lantern on.
0: Yeah, although there's a sense of irony to it as well. Because
1: he's actually not older. yeah, than yeah, mm. no, no, no. Um, but he sometimes acts like he's five. So yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> I will say because I broadly agree with Jacob about like not particularly liking the Doctor being involved in romance, mm. but I, I'm more okay with the River Song romance than I am with like, well, Rose, mm. um, mm. or like any of the the humans. Mm. Because like that, it's more of an equal partnership, yeah. and I think it is very much depicted that way. And mm-hmm. um, for all for all the faults of the execution, mm. like there is a sense of them as independently like powerful and intelligent individuals.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think they definitely do go out of their way to establish that kind of parity between yeah. them. In and mm. yeah, in her having this kind of other life, so I think that is a more responsible thing than making it the doctor. Just falling in love with a standard companion, especially because this series, for all its faults, does kind of try and explore the relationship between companion and doctor as dubiously ethical when the Mm. companion has that kind of hero worship, which Mm. is something we'll get onto, I'm sure.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, so with that, I think we might as well get into the actual episodes.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so we'll begin with The Impossible Planet and Day of the Moon, mm-hmm. two-parter. Impossible, Impossible Astronaut. Astronaut. Impossible Astronaut. I keep saying Impossible Planet. It's a different episode. Just wait until Good I episode, keep saying though.
1: Curse of the Black Pearl.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe you could make a two-parter where, like, Impossible Planet leads into Day of the Moon and then Impossible Astronaut leads into the Satan Pit. Uh, and it'll just make no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but anyway. Mr. President,
1: that child just told you everything you need to know, but you weren't listening. Never mind though, because the answer's yes. I'll take the case. Fellas, the guns, really? I just walked into the highest security office in the United States, parked a big blue box on the rug. You think you can just shoot me? They're Americans! Don't shoot, definitely no shoot. do to shoot us either. Very much not
0: in need of getting shot. Look, look, we've got our hands up. Who the hell are you, sir? need to stay back who are they what is that box it's a police box can't you read i will start us off on this one Mm actually, because i think impossible planet day of the moon is in an interesting place where this is kind of the closest thing the moffat period ever has to like an imperial phase where it's sort of riding high on a particular kind of storytelling that it's if not mastered at least supremely confident in because i think from this point on Moffat is constantly tweaking the way in which he tells stories and I think that we see that going forward even in this series which is something I'll talk about as we go Mm. but this is very much kind of positioning itself in the mold of like Pandarika opens the Big Bang it's not that similar in terms of plot elements uh, although there are similarities but it's that kind of that sort of style of storytelling where there's from a contemporary standpoint a surprising amount of exposition going on uh, a surprising amount of kind of almost luxuriating in uh in in dialogue at certain points in a way that like we don't get later on uh to gesture to things i'll be saying later later on i think that the narratives get a lot more compressed and you get a lot more things happening very quickly and uh, for good and ill i think but yeah this uh, this is one that i can remember I remember watching the first half of the series quite vividly, and I barely remember the second half for whatever reason. Oh, it might be worth establishing, actually. I was um, 19 for the first half of the series and, like, 20 for the second half. So just as a... Because I'll probably be referring back to, like, my initial experiences of it. I remember enjoying it quite a bit at the time. And I think, actually, looking back... I've been wary about looking back in this one, weirdly, because... I have quite mixed feelings about the Smithy, and particularly the kind of back half of the Smith years. Um, so I was kind of pleasantly surprised to find that I still really enjoy this. I think the, the narrative works well enough. It's kind of... Uh, it's doing the interesting experiment of, like, setting up a mystery at the beginning in what is almost kind of a series finale and then letting it unspool over the course of the rest of the series. It has the kind of very overdone but almost enjoyably so, kind of American setting. There's a... There's things to say about that.
3: <laughs> mm, there's
0: actually a bit where the... Because um, uh, I was reading, I think it was Johnny Spandrel's blog post on this earlier, and he uh, he was talking about like, you know, we first see the Doctor, not with the TARDIS, but like with a Stetson on, uh, lounging across like a sort of Corvette or something. And it's like, I suddenly realized, this is not just the iconography of like an American series. This is kind of the iconography of supernatural, which is a—it's the super hulock It's happening.
1: I've I've seen I've seen gift sets that use the. That use I'm
0: it. sure.
1: Sam Dean. That's that's me. My impression of supernatural—it's <laughs> just that for like a million seasons. Yeah,
0: but yeah, I am. Um, I like this one a lot. I really like the silence uh, as a kind of as a monster. Um, I think they're very much in that mold of moffat monsters that are kind of that are preying on kind of everyday fears they're particularly clever in being the kind of inversion of the weeping angels as well in terms of the, the way the act of looking operates mm. which is something that like moffat constantly playing with and constantly playing with the kind of the voyeurism of the camera itself which i'll talk about as we go on but yes i like it i believe i've established that <laughs> uh Beth?
1: Yeah, I like this one as well. I think maybe not as much as you do, but I think it's quite fun in the in the, in the use of the setting. I feel like in Day of the Moon, it looks it starts to look a lot less like the sixties, at least for the first part of it. And I'm not really sure why. I think it's partly like the dress that Rivers wearing when they are captured doesn't mm. look particularly time periody, and then because a lot of the men are in suits. They just look like suits, but I I, I like the it, I like that they're using a different country in a different time. I think that that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the little mystery of the Jefferson Adams-Hamilton thing, although mm. I'm not convinced that that's the only place in America that has yeah. those names <laughs> switched together. That's,
0: I think I even said that when we were watching.
1: Yeah, I think you did, actually. And I also said the thing that I think is a bit weird, which is I always wonder how they know it's a girl's voice, because the whole plot yeah. point of them being mm. like, oh, that's a little girl, can't you tell? And I'm like, I literally could not tell children's yeah. voices Yeah, because Nixon thinks
2: it's a boy, doesn't he? Yeah, it? and then the doctor's yeah, like, yeah. no, it's a girl. And yeah.
1: Canton's like... Oh, Canton True. as well. Actually, he's another supernatural crossover. Oh yeah, that actor of course he's Crowley in Supernatural. But I like, I like Canton. I like Canton Everett Delaware III. Okay, I find mm-hmm. the thing weird about his whole wanting to get married thing, and then all oh, the like joke slash reveal at the end is that he wants to get married to a man, mm-hmm. and that's why because I just don't understand. I don't think that anybody thought that marriage was really on the cards at that time,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't see how he would have thought that was. Possible, so it just seemed like a bit of a weird way to write the character where he doesn't seem to have any comprehension of the issues surrounding gay rights at the time. But I, I mean, I like Canton as a character, I think he's a fun person to have along. Um, and I like to, that we get to see old Canton, mm. um, the
0: guy who does the voice in Civ 5. Yep,
1: yeah, that's what he does when he's not delivering cans of gasoline to mm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I I think the silence are pretty cool. Although I do say, I, I do I do find it confusing how you could kind of get around their whole shtick if anybody just thought to describe to someone who wasn't looking at them what they looked like. Wouldn't that... Like, if, if, if I was looking at one and you were just looking at me and I was like, oh, Kieran, there's a thing behind you. It's really tall. It looks kind of like Nick Cave, but an alien. Then you would remember it, even if I didn't.
0: Well, that is kind of what they seem to do in like the back in Day of the Moon in particular mm. where they know that the silence exists mm. and they kind of know vaguely what they are and what they do even mm. when they're not looking at them
1: mm. I also wonder about I, I, I puzzle over little oh ne-
0: sorry I, just to go back to that I've just remembered there is kind of an explanation because okay. the doctor says they kind of edit themselves out of your memory even when you're not looking at them because mm. they have to kind of constantly uh... remind themselves okay sorry that
1: that that makes sense i must have just like not picked up on that when it was happening then and i was also wondering if i ponder the ethics of killing all of the silence on site that troubles me because they do kind of like live here and you know if they just wanted to hang like bats from the ceiling in my homestead (laughs) and not like bother anybody i guess that's fine (laughs) also it's sad that amy doesn't tell rory about the pregnancy Mm. And a bit weird, considering that he's a nurse. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that's my jumbled up thoughts on this. But I do overall, I overall enjoyed it. I should probably point that out. Mm. Jacob.
2: I really didn't like this one when I first watched it. Uh, Yeah, I really didn't get it at all. And now I've since rewatched it a couple of times. And I do really like it now. I think Mm -hmm. it's one of the strongest episodes in the season. From things I've said in the past, you would expect me not to like it because of all those like very obvious signifiers of america mm. you know like like a very specific like stereotypical image of america like from like the 1950s 60s and so on. weirdly enough that's one of the reasons why i do like it and and the reason why is because it's it's doing something productive with it mm. i think it's playing really cleverly with the idea of pastiche and how pastiche impacts on our view of history and it, it's it it fits with its whole like the way in which the silence is, I think, in part a meditation on memory and mm-hmm. gaps in our memory. But I'm going to go into that in more detail when we get into the the whole thing. But, um yeah, I think that actually works really well. I don't like Marie Gold going wild in the background <laughs> as usual. I
0: feel like that's a, a base comment that we can have for <laughs> yeah, this whole yes. series, so.
2: Well, particularly the moment I'm thinking of is when they're all on the beach and they're burning the body and it's going, oh, know, like yeah. and it's like, it's too much. It's just too much. But yeah, you're right. That's just a base, base comment for everything. Yeah, and I think, um, I think there's some really good direction going on here. Mm-hmm. I think there's some really clever yeah, stuff that. going on with the camera work. It's, it's just really well put together. It looks really good. Yeah, I'm very, very positive about it, really.
0: We we talk about that actually. It's a gesture towards it a little bit already. Mm-hmm. The the way in which the camera work works, and mm. um, because this is something I remember, I remember being very proud of myself for noticing in um, in Blink after watching it a few times, the fact that the weeping angels are subject to the audience's perception as well as the characters. Mm. So you never see them moving, because there are actually points in Blink where. Um, Nobody is looking at the, the angels except the camera. Mm. And actually something vaguely similar happens with the silence. Because the the silence, because they only exist when you're looking at them. Elizabeth Sandifer has a really good bit, piece about this. And I am just like more or less plagiarizing her at this point. But uh, what's new about that? Essentially, the way she puts it is that they hide in cuts. Mm. Because like, for instance, there's the, the bit where in the orphanage in Day of the Moon where Amy suddenly realizes she's got marks all over her Mm. and we realize there have been silence but we haven't seen them in the same way that Amy hasn't Mm. Uh, which is enormously effective Mm. and I think just an incredibly clever piece of um, Toby Haynes directed this along with the kind of last few episodes leading up to this and we don't always kind of shout out individual directors but I think he really deserves it here Mm. because it plays a blinder with this, mm. uh, with this two-parter. Yeah, there's there anything?
1: Just I think in terms of the setting as well. I think that it was a good. I like the I like the fact that there's a temporal and geographical jump between the two parts of the two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, because although obviously we've counted it as a two-parter and it is one, mm. it does feel like a significant jump. And I also like how they use the opportunity to have fun with showing even more ac- iconic. Americana mm. images, mm. so there's like River in New York, and mm. I think Amy's in the desert, and is Rory at the Hoover Dam. Rory's at
0: the Hoover Dam, Uh
1: I think it? Amy might just be in the just be in the desert. Oh, she is, there. yeah,
0: it's just so. like, yeah.
1: But they're all in really different mm. places, so they get to do even more of the mm. having fun with...
0: Kind of iconography. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of that, actually.
1: So I think that it's... I think it's an interesting way of doing a two-parter that we don't often see where it's mm. not like build up to a cliffhanger resolve the quick the cliffhanger quickly in the next part mm. and then move on with the same story it's actually two mm. sort of quite distinct halves mm. which I think is yeah, is a nice touch
0: I think that's something Moffat has talked about that he kind of struggled with the idea of what do you do with a two-parter mm. with the cliffhanger and he said in a few places that the conclusion he came to was that you start the second part, in a completely different place to where you left off the first. Yeah. Mm. Which I think makes a lot of sense, and is something you can see him do, like, certainly from this point, even before this point, really, throughout his run, and that I think works tremendously well. I think,
2: going back to what you were saying about the, the camera work, I think what I really like about this episode is the way in which those directoral decisions are really well interweaved with the villain and with mm. the setting. Mm. Um... Because kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning was this idea of the silence are all about gaps in memory. You know, like you say, they edit themselves out of the out of existence.
0: And the word editing is used consistently yeah. of them as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they've been apparently on Earth for thousands of years, but no one can remember them. But then alongside that, you also have this... Very over-the-top, very stereotypical image of America. You know, the American diner at the start is in this kind of, like, 50s style that's Mm -hmm. like, you know, the kind of style you associate with, like, American graffiti or Back to the Future or something like Mm -hmm. that. And then you have the moon landing as central to Mm -hmm. the plot in 69, and the Apollo astronaut and all of that imagery. But there's this constant emphasis on what kind of gets pushed out. When you focus simply on those kind of pastiches of what America is and what particular mm. time periods are, and I think what this really is is it's a meditation on how past like I say how pastiche can can edit our memory, because you get the line where the doctor says more happens in 1969 than anyone remembers, mm-hmm. and that really fits neatly with that.
1: He actually, the I think he actually says more happens in 69 than anyone else. Uh, uh. I don't know if River's are around in that scene. In <laughs> oh, <but>, uh, spirit, <laughs> probably not because I feel like uh, mm. it would have been too too much for the BBC.
2: <laughs> but I think I think in that sense the silence play a really interesting role as like a, a kind of um, an expression of the really unpleasant things that are lurking mm. behind those superficial Mm. Uh, memories, you know, they're, they're kind of because they're kind of hidden. Mm. And I think that moment where they edit the silence into the iconic imagery of the moon landing oh, yeah. is kind yeah. of this sense of trying to use the surface imagery that would normally hide the, uh, you know, the kind of the, the unpleasant parts of history, using the surface to bring. To bring that kind of to the fore and to hmm. for people to see that, and I think I'm going to use the C word again, capitalism. Oh, oh. <laughs> not not the other C. Several words. <laughs> C words w- <laughs> went through my head. To be oh, honest. oh no! Oh no! 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 Not I'm... that one either. Um, but but yeah, capitalism. I think that is something that's going on in here. Because I remember when when I watched this with my dad, the thing that he said about the silence, which. Is the kind of thing I would expect him to say, um, and which I was thinking as well. And was one of my criticisms at the time was they look like a stereotypical alien. They look like something out of a fifties B movie again, and they look quite good yeah. and they look quite creepy. But why are they in suits? Was <laughs> the question that we asked.
1: Because um, they're at their day jobs, Kira. <laughs> Not Kira, you're Kieran. Oh God. <laughs>
2: but one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is it gives this appearance of like a possibly governmental FBI mm, thing, mm. or like a corporate thing. Mm. And when you add to that, the line that you get when they're, they're in the warehouse looking at the astronauts' gear and they're saying, why do they want this? You know, And he says, they're like parasites. They don't make things mm. themselves. They get other species to make them for them. And that surely is like an explanation of what capitalism is. It's about people who are capitalists not making things themselves, profiting out of it, but getting a workforce to do it for them. Hmm. And so, in a sense, this this idea of the, the science as something that's kind of lurking beneath the surface that comes to the fore, that is sometimes exposed, is almost like uh, someone like Stephen Shapiro's idea of capitalism remaining acceptable until certain points where the exploitation that exists beneath it or the kind of some of the nefariousness behind it comes to the fore. I think that is somewhat problematized by the fact that they said they've been out for there for over a thousand years. Mm. And there's almost this sense that it's like a, a perpetual state. But I have reasons for that that I'm gonna get onto at some point. Ooh. But not now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's I don't know what anyone else thinks about those things. <laughs>
3: no, I think
0: that's good. And actually, uh, I, I mean, I have a couple of uh, points to pick up on there. But, w- I mean, one part of that iconography, mm. uh, one particular kind of... one that's particularly prominent in the narrative of this, this two-parter is Nixon. Mm. Yeah. Because the the episode does something quite surprising with Nixon in that he's not in any way the villain or a villain. And he's like... He's not necessarily like pleasant, but he's agreeable enough, mm. and we have the like. There's the implication that the the Watergate tapes happened because the doctor told him to monitor everything that was going on in his office, which is in itself a kind of cheeky wink to like how we perceive Nixon. Yeah, but there's one bit in uh, Day of the Moon actually that really struck me as very very interesting in terms of uh, in terms of Nixon because. We're getting, you know, we're getting a very much a television version of Nixon and very much a kind of almost surprisingly sanitized version of Nixon, uh, which I think is deliberate. Um, which is the moment where he asks the doctor, like, will I be remembered? And the doctor is like, oh, yeah, they're never going to forget you. Which is actually weirdly very in character from everything I know about Nixon, because he was obsessed with how he was perceived. That's Part of why he taped mm. everything. Mm. Uh, that's why like the Watergate breakings happened and all that kind
1: of thing. Did my voice go squeaky whilst I was talking about this illegal activity? <laughs> 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 that's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's kind of strange though, because it is such a standard thing to have the characters do in time travel programs. Like to ask if they'll be remembered, so it is kind of rare to find someone who actually cares about it and definitely would have been interested in knowing yeah. about it. It's 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 quite strange. I like how the guy that they have playing Nixon seems to have quite a limited range to his Nixon impression, mm. which mostly <laughs> just <laughs> amounts to saying, "I'm President Nixon." Yeah, and that's that's his that, that's it's him that's president. him <laughs> um,
0: There's something to that in itself though as well because it's kind of the cultural memory of Nixon. Yeah. Mm. Um. It's, it's almost surprising he doesn't get to say I'm not a crook at any point.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think if we're talking about
2: Nixon, the other Ooh. thing we have to talk about that is particularly prominent in this episode, but also I think comes up in other places in the series, is conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. really important yeah. in this episode. I mean, the silence of like, yeah, again, this, this shadowy force dressed in these suits that make them look kind of like... I don't know, again, like FBI, corporate, I don't Mm. know.
0: Um, They they also, and this is something else I was going to bring up, they look like, as you kind of mentioned, they're like the stereotypical image of like the grey alien. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the episode is actually set around the time when alien abduction stories really Mm. started to take off. Mm. Ah, Mm.
1: I hadn't realised that it was quite... I hadn't made the Mm. connection that it was quite so timed to that but yeah it really is yeah <laughs>
2: yeah. you have this like this shadowy nefarious force that's been doing things manipulating human history in secret mm. and in the wedding of river song you see them in a pyramid with area 51 <laughs> written on it <laughs> that's I mean, it's like, you know it's like all the conspiracy theories and mm. then on top of that you have the focus on the moon landing which mm. you know there's that whole thing of was the moon landing yeah, fakes yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I think what's what's interesting about having nixon in is by including nixon and continually referencing the thing that we all know about which mm. is watergate the show goes from referencing you know a lot of different conspiracy theories that are clearly nonsense into a conspiracy that actually happened mm. and i think i don't know for me this i've kind of read things about conspiracy theories recently just mm. out of interest and if you read something like Peter Knight's kind of, uh, almost like, intro to the history of conspiracy theory study, he talks about how there's a, particularly in the beginning, like in some of the studies in the 60s, there's a tendency to pathologize conspiracy theorists. To so talk about the idea of a paranoid style. So mm-hmm. it's a way in which, you know, your your, your mind works, or there's, there's something wrong you know, uh, with you, for you to think, you know, believe conspiracy theories. And There's slowly a move away from that in research to more empirical studies where they're going. Well, actually, some of these things are quite widespread, Mm. and clearly not all of these people have something wrong with them. You know, there's there's something else going on. There's more of a move to the idea that there are real historical reasons for why people would believe conspiracy theories, Mm. and I think including Nixon as a conspiracy theory actually, or a conspiracy that actually happened, does move us towards the idea that. Maybe belief in conspiracy theories is is more historically determined. And I think what I was saying earlier about the science as this kind of capitalist metaphor plays into that in an interesting way. Because, you know, they're kind of they're under they're in the the tunnels underground. And there is there is this kind of capitalist metaphor, but there's also this sense of an infrastructural metaphor, mm. which is part of that as well. And there's the fact that when they shoot the lightning at people, it kind of Comes off all the light yeah, sources. So yeah, there's a kind of yeah. sense that they're channeling energy as well. Mm. So there is an infrastructural thing there, which is linked to this idea of them as, as avatars of capitalism, I suppose. Mm. Um, but there's also a sense of Cold War paranoia as well, and the the idea that there are these sleeper cells lurking that are you know kind of again manipulating history that you can't quite see. Mm. And I think what I was saying before about. The idea that the capitalism metaphor doesn't quite fit and doesn't quite work is part of that because I think that's the problem with conspiracy theory and I think that's kind of what this episode tries to tease out the idea that conspiracy theory sometimes is grasping at the idea that we have this very totalizing system that sometimes can be nefarious but it doesn't it doesn't always quite grasp it and it can take it too far and start to personify the system mm. and you know use particular racial tropes yep. to as we know like with anti-semitism uh and blame certain groups
1: was this around the same time as mk ultra is going on
2: i think possibly
1: um just because like that was a, that's a famous example of what was thought of mm. to be a conspiracy theory but then turned out to mm. be mm. actual experimentation that messing with people's sensory perceptions in the same way that the silence do where they mm. mess with your memory. I don't know if there's anything intended to reference that, but I feel like if you're saying something in America mm. at this time and drawing on mm. other conspiracy theories, it's kind Makes of an so. obvious yeah, resonance. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. You yeah, know, I think that's. I think I think it's I think it's really interesting the way that it does bring together lots of different sorts of conspiracies mm. and it introduces its own one which is the silence being put into the moon landing footage.
0: Mm it reminds me of what you were saying in our series 1 episodes about aliens of london world mm. war 3 yeah about yeah. the the Slitheen being essentially lizardy people mm. in human suits mm. yeah. and seemingly playing quite obviously into a sort of conspiracy theory angle but in a way that didn't really seem to have much to say about that mm. Mm. and so i think i think this is um this is kind of, this is more interesting in that there's there's something going on in the kind of play of yeah. ideas yeah yeah um, yeah, it's
2: using it productively, I think, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. yes, yes.
0: I think with regard to, to the kind of things we've been gesturing out in terms of iconography and in terms of like cultural memory mm. and that kind of thing, it's interesting that the Doctor makes use of not only a cultural memory, but a cultural artifact mm. in terms of the footage of the moon landings. And well, I think it's an overstatement to say that everyone in the world has seen the moon landings. By the way, but I get I, I get the idea of it as a universalizing thing.
1: I've seen bits, like the bits that were in this episode. Yeah, I've seen those. <laughs> yeah,
0: the with the silence. I remember that. <laughs>
1: uh. Oh no, Kieran, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What's that? It's just the silence. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, what was I saying
0: again? <laughs> um, yeah, but again, it's like, it, like I was saying way back when we were talking about Ambassadors of Death, I'm a big fan of when the show makes use of the medium of television. Mm. And in a way, part of the reason I was gesturing towards Supernatural earlier is that this is a televisual version of mm. America as well. Mm. And a televisual version of Nixon and a televisual version of the moon landings refracted through the fact that the moon landings were experienced through television. Mm. Also, incidentally, in the um, the gap between Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee. But there, there, I I do think there is something slightly playful going on there as well in terms of setting the the show in kind of a gap in its own history, mm. almost. Mm. Mm. Uh, anything else?
1: I don't think I've I've not got anything else.
0: Uh no. Just no, to, just to really. say
1: that although I started with a lot of negatives, I do I do, I do, actually enjoy this two-parter and like it. I think it's just that sometimes the things that I note down is the stuff that I didn't enjoy, mm-hmm. and yeah. so um, it might have seemed more negative than what I actually feel about it.
0: Oh, one thing that struck me, actually, because I happened to rewatch this one, to slightly do this recording, in um, January of 2020. Uh, which was like a week or so after Moffat and engages' Dracula mm. had just uh, kind of finished, uh, and I realized that the guy who runs the orphanage is called Doctor Renfrew. <laughs> oh, yeah. So like, there's there's a kind of um, the
1: shadiest possible guy. <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a kind of there's now this kind of Renfield thing going on there in terms of he's the person who like is in some way without quite realising what he's doing in cahoots with a, to him, a supernatural mm-hmm. and
1: it's southern gothic
0: yeah, yes it is um, because he's Good a point. southern
1: boy the yeah. Renfrew in yeah, the yeah. in the show, so we're suddenly playing with a different genre as mm-hmm.
0: well and uh, yeah, shall we move
1: on then? yeah, mm. let's do it let's
0: move on to Curse of the Black Spot oh
1: hell yeah Oh,
0: the yeah. best episode of this season It's a I, I, classic <laughs> everyone's
2: favourite uh, doctor, what's, what's happening to me? She can smell the blood on your skin. She's marked
1: you for death. She? A demon out there in the ocean.
0: Okay, groovy. So not just pirates today. We've managed to bag your ship where there's a demon popping in.
1: <laughs> Very efficient. I mean, if something's going to kill you, it's nice that it drops you a note to remind
2: you.
0: You know what, Jacob? Why don't you start us off then?
2: So in my notes, I've got Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon. And then there's this strange lacuna. <laughs> Almost like the silence have been there. Yeah, and it's The doctor's wife. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> mm. And it's because this episode. Yeah, this episode, I don't really think, for me, is doing anything interesting. I think it's a real mess in terms of tone. The way, it, you know, we kind of. One, we're on the pirate ship one minute doing some kind of weird pastiche of pirate stories. And then suddenly we're on this spaceship mm. where they heal people. And. Yeah, I just I, I, just don't get any of it at all. There's also... This is also part of the running trend that I'm going to come back to in this series, which I don't really like, of focus on father and son relationships mm. where the mother's kind of cut out in some way. Yeah. Of, like, it's kind of either peripheral or just not there at all. And it comes back in closing time. It comes back in Night Terrors. But yeah, no, I have to confess, I... Rewatched this episode quite a while ago, and then I was like, "I should rewatch this again." When I say quite a while ago, like it was like a year or so, probably mm. like when, around when we started this podcast, I would say. Mm. Um, so it's not too long; I do remember it, but I should have watched it again, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. I watched everything else again, but I couldn't do it because I struggled so much the first time to get through it. Yeah, it's just clodding
0: dull. Doesn't have anything interesting to say, really. Honestly, the thing that surprises me most there is the fact that you watched this episode of your own freewheel and not like, <laughs> specifically for a recording. <laughs> Beffin.
1: Yeah, I don't like this one. It's not a not really surprising comment to make. So, like, where exactly were they? How far from port were they? What has that kid been eating? Why was any of this important? And mm. why should I care? And that's what I feel.
0: Yeah, that's all very fair. <laughs> I mean, in a previous episode, I think it was when we were talking about series one. I was talking about one of the episodes I didn't particularly like. I think it was Boomtown. Mm. And I contrasted it favorably with Curse of the Black Spot. Because i said something along the lines of, well, at least it's trying to do something. Unlike mm. Curse of the Black Spot. Mm. Which I guess is trying to do something in that it's trying to kind of do a pirate episode. But also mix it up a bit by making it a kind of uh, like sci-fi historical in in the vein of something like the Time Warrior or the Time Meddler or something like that. But it's it's not good as as you kind of indicated, Jacob. It is the most forgettable episode imaginable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so forgettable that it itself forgets things yeah. because there is a character that's a, the boatswain character who vanishes in between shots mm. it's just not accounted for at all um, well, you see that's,
2: that's in keeping with the thematic emphasis of mm. the series <laughs> isn't it <laughs> uh-huh.
1: I, I also enjoy the bit where they're like the powder rooms is as dry as anything and then it just has a random barrel of water yeah
0: Yeah. because <laughs> you know you need to kind of dunk the powder in water sometimes yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: that was so that the kid had something to drink even though they didn't know he was aboard
0: yeah I mean, in terms of, like, what you were saying about, like, what is the point of this, it is worth pointing out that the big twist of this episode is not exactly the same as, but certainly quite similar to the Empty Child Doctor Dances, Mm. Mm. but much, much less clever, much less emotionally and thematically resonant. Mm. It's just sort of there.
1: Oh, we get to see Amy doing some incredibly bad CPR, though. Oh, yeah. Like, when um, <laughs> when Rory's like, oh, you know what to do. You can resuscitate me even though I'm drowning, because that's why he's been put in the yeah, health yeah. stasis thing. And so Amy has agreed to try and help save him from drowning. And then what she does when they get into the TARDIS is she, like... Goes for a few of the, like, pushing on the chest things Mm. and then stops and cries for a bit. (laughs) And then he just wakes up. (laughs) Yeah. I guess she got confused and instead of doing the, like, three breaths after the 30 Mm. pushes, she just decided to cry on him instead. Yeah.
0: Um, I think, like, the latest medical advice is that you should just stop after a few compressions and cry for a bit. Yeah. That seems to work.
1: (laughs) Um. It's yeah. So I thought that was that yeah. was fun. I don't know. With all the stuff, with all the stuff I've been saying about how it's good, how they show that Rory is a nurse and does nurse things. Mm. Mm. Uh, it might be nice if he had realized. Well, I guess he just didn't realize how bad Amy was at doing nurse things because he's all like up on the nurse knowledge. Mm. It just didn't occur to him. It's like everyone knows how to do CPR. Yeah,
0: I guess so. Uh, God, is there anything I could talk? Oh, kind of. It's not even something that's interesting about this episode. It's more just kind of interesting in terms of Doctor Who in general. But there's a there's a thing going on where the Doctor kind of reacts negatively to the idea of like, there being a curse. The idea of like the siren. Which is in keeping with a frequent characteristic of the Doctor which is kind of taking refuge in rationality. This is interesting to me purely because I've, I've written about it in relation to Kinda which I think does something interesting with that. But then later on, he talks about like, he says something about folklore springs from truth, it springs from not like necessarily is true, mm-hmm. which seems to kind of be gesturing towards, well, maybe these kind of myths and stories are useful in themselves. But like everything in this episode, it's quite vague. It kind of doesn't go anywhere. Very much like the boat swing. No, sorry. He's the opposite. He does go somewhere. We just don't know where. Um,
1: I just can't believe that there's a character that just disappears. And I feel like that cannot be stated enough how it (laughs) is. Because the thing is, this episode doesn't really aim for anything in terms of an emotional arc or Mm, an interesting theme or something. But it also is just sort of incompetent on a sort of basic level of plot and... Kept making sure that all the footage makes sense that you have. Yeah. Well, so it, it's not yeah. only unambitious; it's also yeah. failing to reach yeah. what it is supposed mm. to be doing.
2: It's like it's like it's this episode is a boat to get you from one episode to the next. Yeah, and it should be it should be sufficiently built. To get you across. Mm. But instead it starts to sink about halfway across. Mm. (laughs) Yes,
0: fittingly enough.
1: And then Lily Cole shows up to save you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then you fly away from Earth.
1: Yeah, I don't even know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There is one thing I guess I can say for this episode is being in between Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon and the Doctor's Wife is a hard place to be. Mm Mm-hmm. It's still very, very bad, and it would be very, very bad even if we're in between two not particularly great episodes. Mm. But the fact that it's in between two kind of peaks in their own way Mm. really does not help it. Mm. But speaking of that, let's move on and talk about something interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: I've been looking for a word. A big, complicated word, but so sad. I found it now. What word? Alive. I'm alive.
0: Alive isn't sad.
3: It's sad when it's over. I'll always be here. But this is when we talked. And now even that has come to an end. There's something I didn't get to say to you. Goodbye. No. I just wanted to say... Hello. Hello, Doctor.
1: It's so very, very nice to meet you.
0: So, uh, Bethany, do you want to start us off on The Doctor's Wife?
1: I really like The Doctor's Wife. I think it's the probably the best episode of the Smith era and... Up there with the best episodes of the new series, I think that it's really funny. It plays a lot with the history of the show, but in a way that doesn't feel kind of exclusionary to people who haven't Mm. seen everything ever. Mm. I also appreciate in advance that it, it, like in retrospect, I appreciate the fact that it establishes the time lords can change gender when regenerating thing with Mm. the corsair, Mm. which is a very elegantly established touch. Um I also really, really love the bit where um, where Rory's like, but he's a Time Lord and Amy says, That's just what they're called, it doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. Which <laughs> mm, might be my favourite characterization of what the Time Lords are and what they're mm. about. And it's such an offhand line, but it's so beautiful. And I think that actress who plays Idris, that I've forgotten what her name is. Saran Jones is amazing right, and i think right, that right. she is perfect at conveying this kind of very unhuman consciousness being put into a human body
3: mm.
1: and i think that it's just damn near perfect i like the playing with repeating corridors in the mm. rory and amy bit because that's a thing in like Horns of Nyman, particularly, I remember there being like the same corridor over and over again. It's a, it's It's a a classic Who thing. Yeah,
0: it's kind of infamously so.
1: Um, The only thing that I don't really like is the bit where, um, where the doctor's like, "She's the Tardis, and she's a woman," and Amy says something like, "Did you wish really hard?" That's the only bit that I don't really like, and that's just because it's like the whole sexual thing.
0: Oh, I quite like that. I, I get your objection, but like. Yeah. I think it's a lot less egregious than most of the cases of like that. Mm.
1: Fair. But yeah, that's my that's my take.
0: Yeah, Jacob, what do you think?
1: Ooh. Time for
2: an unpopular video. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um when I first saw this, and this may be because I was extremely down on season six just in general, I really, really, really did not like it. I can't explain why, I just didn't. Having re-watched it. My opinion of it has improved a lot. And I have to admit the more I've watched it the more I've liked it. I still don't feel that this is anywhere near as good as everyone says it is. For me personally, mm. I just I don't maybe I'm missing something I don't know, but I I think there are some interesting things going on. I think the concept of putting the TARDIS into a, you know, a human, well, it's not human but a person
3: mm.
2: is a is a good and interesting idea. I think there's kind of this interesting stuff with imagery about, you know, kind of the collapse of inside and outside Mm -hmm. of um, like the idea of almost like a Russian doll thing of like boxes within boxes. There's something going on with that that I can't quite grasp. And I don't think quite coheres into anything, but I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind. But um, I think it's I think it's a decent episode. I quite enjoy watching it now, but I don't think there's anything exceptional in this. For me, you know,
0: it's not like for me, it's not like a heaven sent. But I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um. Damn, I should have gone after Bethan because I like completely one hundred percent agree with Beth <laughs> on this one. Um. This is this is hands down my favorite Smith episode. Um. One of the highlights of the new series. Heaven sent is, if anything, one of the few episodes that I think might be even on the same level of as it, if not better. There are a lot of things I like about it. I mean, I've, I've loved it since I first saw it. And I think part of the reason for that is that I really like Neil Gaiman as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I kind of, even as soon as I saw this, I kind of detected a lot of the things I like about him in it. And um, there's the kind of the play of horror imagery uh, is really interesting. There's, it's, it's actually a very macabre episode. In some interesting ways. Most obviously in the kind of. The, the sequence with Rory and Amy. in the TARDIS. Uh, where they keep being cut off from each other. And like no, not being able to find each other. And uh, Rory is apparently dead. At one point. Also Uncle Ananti. Mm. I love the idea of the like patchwork people. With like bits of different species. Mm. Who are actually sustained. As it turns out by the like. The living planet. That they're on. But I think what I particularly like about this one, and it's something that I've really begun to appreciate as I've revisited it in the wake of, like, seeing more of the classic series, and actually even more so now at this moment than I did when we rewatched it for this podcast, I really, really like what it does with continuity. The way in which it it uses continuity. Because there's all kinds of references going on in terms of things that happen in it, things that are... that are mentioned, like there's the telepathic cube at the beginning, which is, is like something from the war games. Even the idea of having a run around inside the TARDIS, there's shades of the Invasion of Time, and to a lesser extent, Castrovalva, and various other things. But what this does is, it makes a statement at the heart of the series. It's something that, in a way, completely recontextualizes everything that has come before it. And s- somehow manages to do that and actually enhance everything that's come before it. What I'm thinking of specifically is the idea of, to an extent, the idea that the TARDIS stole the Doctor, mm. but more importantly, her assertion that like, she was in control the whole time, that she was deliberately steering him towards particular situations and circumstances.
1: Where he needs to be.
0: Exactly. It's a, it's a sense of redefining the world of the show and of playing with its foundations but in a way that actually only enhances everything. If it was not obvious, part of the reason this is on my mind is I am thinking of the Timeless Children. Mm. Which, to my mind, I'm not one of those people who thinks like it breaks canon or anything like that. Because apart from anything else, what is Doctor Who canon? But I just find it unnecessary and plodding. And, and I find the idea of the Doctor being a special one does active harm to my idea of the character. And the idea of the character... That we've seen previously. But we'll get onto that at some point. Mm. And so. The Doctor's Wife. Is even brighter for me in retrospect. Because it is. Cleverer and subtler. But in some ways actually more transformative. In terms of what it's doing with the show.
2: Mm. I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. The thing you were saying about the, the this idea. That the, the TARDIS stole the Doctor. Rather mm. than the other way around. I really like that. On the level of. Gender and kind of the idea that mm. the TARDIS is female and is empowered, I like that, and I also I also think incidentally as well. I think in terms of romance, I think this is one case where it kind of makes sense. Mm. Um, I don't like the kind of overtly sexual thing that you mentioned earlier, but I think yeah, I can kind of kind of see kind of see this. But on the other hand, what I don't like about the the TARDIS stole him thing is that. For me, it creates a vulnerability in the program to the idea of the Doctor not being in control of their own destiny, which is Cartmel's term. Yeah, and that I think is the big program, the problem, the problem that the program had in the nineteen eighties, and that McCoy's era begins to rectify. Mm. Because for me, I like the Doctor to have that kind of manipulative element. I don't necessarily want them to be godlike. I don't necessarily want them to be like the special one. But I think that once you have the character not in control of what they're doing, I think you're potentially compromising those plot lines like you see in Curse of Fenric, where he's kind of, you know, planned things in mm. advance and so on. So I'm I, I have mixed feelings about it because I I think there's some positives to it, but I also think there's some negatives to it
0: as well. Well, I think the way I always interpret that is as while it's something that applies and the idea of the TARDIS deliberately taking mm. a Doctor in certain places, while it's something that obviously applies across the board of the series, yeah. it also seems to be something that affects uh, the first Doctor and I guess the second Doctor more That's than true. any others. yeah. And the first Doctor is the one who is kind of famously reluctant to um, a kind of reluctant hero to begin mm, with. Mm. The second Doctor is the one who has a kind of chaotic element to him mm. where he kind of seems to blunder into situations and, like, while he's in in his own way kind of as manipulative as McCoy, mm. for instance, he's the one who sort of, like, is clearly making things up as he goes, and mm. which is something that is true of the character in pretty much every guy's anyway. Mm. So I think... There's a sense in which the I get what you mean about the character not being in control of his own destiny but I think what that suggests is actually more more than anything that the doctor kind of begins to work in tandem with the tardis on some mm. presumably unconscious level mm. as things move on uh, and that's how you get to the kind of mm. the the more seventh doctor level of he's planning everything out in advance and he's mm. and he's very deliberate in everything he's doing. Mm.
1: I also don't know that it, like, necessarily changes um, how the Doctor's going to act based on this new knowledge because I feel like it's the kind of decision when he makes the stealing the TARDIS decision where, you know, how we make decisions all the time that we feel are authentically ours but are Mm. somehow influenced by Mm. all sorts of different things. And sometimes people can be actively suggested to make decisions like in Darren Brown-esque tricks where you feel but you still feel like the decision you made is your decision but it was actually influenced by something else I feel like Mm. the doctor's not going to change the fact that they feel like they stole the TARDIS Mm. based on the fact that the TARDIS believes that they stole the doctor Mm. because they're both kind of equally powerful entities Mm. or Mm. comparable entities Mm. and so I think that there's some kind of mutual theft going Mm. on there. Yeah, And so I don't think that it necessarily puts the Doctor in it would only put the Doctor in a in a position of powerlessness if Mm. he felt that it changed something which I feel like is again with the Timeless Children thing, that's why it's a bit weird because the revelation doesn't really change anything about the Doctor's character. Mm-hmm. But I think here it's dealt with in a much better way where it just doesn't change mm-hmm. anything, but the Doctor also doesn't act as if it does at any point.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think you put that well. And I think what this episode is kind of getting at and what the title in particular is referring to, and the title incidentally, um, is like, a kind of in-joke in itself, yeah. because um, John Nathan-Turner suggested to journalists that there was going to be an episode called The Doctor's Wife. He had like had it pinned up on a board. From various reports I've read, it was either to like smoke out a mole in the production office, or it was just to kind of mess with journalists, mm-hmm. uh, either of which seems very plausible. Mm-hmm. But um, what the title is suggesting is that there is a partnership. At the mm. heart of it, what the Doctor does. Mm. Uh, and a partnership that may not... Uh, has probably gone unacknowledged... In various ways throughout the show. But that is there throughout. Mm. And so... like At the heart of the show is this idea of the Doctor and the TARDIS. As these two, as you say, powerful entities. Working in tandem on some level. The other thing I wanted to ask about... Because mm-hmm. I'm interested to know what you both think.
2: I think something that frustrates me about this story is unlike what I was saying with The Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon, I feel like it's all woven together really cleverly. I feel like there's multiple things going on thematically that work with the camera work and with the villain and everything else. Hmm. And I've, I would apply that to a lot of stuff in the programme that I really like. One of the things that I that frustrates me with The Doctor's Wife, and why for me it doesn't... I'm not saying it's bad, I still quite like it, but I don't think it hits the heights hmm. that I've heard a lot of people say it does... Is there is stuff going on conceptually, and thematically? So, like, you get that all that imagery of, like, I was saying, like boxes within boxes. Mm. You know, like, so like the TARDIS is inside Idris's body, who is also inside a cage. You have the little boxes will mm. make him angry. You know, the the, like the messages. Um, you have the bubble universe, which he says isn't quite how it is, but the universe inside another bigger universe. Mm. All of that, and I think I can see how that would fit with the the idea of, you know, the TARDIS. Like, it's bigger on the inside. And mm. the kind of the thing he does with Leela in... Uh, Robots of Death. Robots of Death, yeah, yeah, where he's like, which box is bigger? Yeah. So, you know, that kind of thing. Or which box is small? I can see how it fits with all of that. And then, obviously, there's more thematic stuff with the idea of reuse and the, the patchwork people and mm. this kind of, like, junkyard, and they make this... Tardis, kind of just on the fly. What do you think that's doing productively beyond gesturing to the program? Because that's one of my issues with it. It's it's kind of that postmodern thing where like it's self-referential, but what's it doing beyond kind of cannibalizing itself and its own material? And I don't know if I've just not thought about it enough or not quite grasped it in some way. And maybe I'll get it when I keep watching it, I don't know, but I think that stuff is clever Mm. but I don't see much that it's doing productively. I don't know what you think about that.
1: I mean, it's possible that the Patchwork people are kind of a reference to what the episode is doing Mm. where it's like taking bits of the show and putting them together into Mm. a different thing.
2: Yeah, Yeah.
1: I don't know that it's necessarily doing much that refers to things outside of the world of the show apart Mm. from the there are some issues, I guess, surrounding like um, the fact that the TARDIS is this living entity, but is used mm. in some way by the characters to like travel and mm. stuff, mm. and the fact that it's a story about something being given a voice that hasn't previously had mm. one. That's right. Um, so I think there is interesting stuff there. I do take the point that it is a lot, a, like a large part of it is a Doctor Who episode about aspects of Doctor Who because mm. it's about the TARDIS. Mm. But then I kind of still really enjoy it. So maybe... Mm. Normally I hate stuff that's just about yeah. the show.
2: I mean, I will but... say, I think I think it does handle the self-referentiality well. Mm. And I think it doesn't fall into the, the kind of continuity obsession of, like, the 1980s.
0: Yeah. Mm. Definitely, yeah. I guess I a couple of things... Uh, occur to me and they're not necessarily like well thought out answers but firstly i guess the boxes i think are interesting Mm. because boxes in doctor who just make me think of kinder Mm. and the boxes in kinder are like this kind of mysterious thing that is like most things in kinder never really explained Mm. why they seem to have different effects on different people one of them is basically just a jack-in-the-box Whereas another completely changes a character's personality. Mm. And I think there's something going on there in terms of projection. In terms of like, you get out of it what you put in. So there's potentially something there in terms of like, even as a comment on the show itself. Mm. The other thing I guess is that as sci-fi, this is exploring kind of very interesting sci-fi elements. I mean, obviously, you kind of mm. mentioned there's the bubble universe, there's the, like, mm. living uh, asteroid thing. Yeah. Uh, there's the patchwork people. Yeah. But the one that really struck me, particularly on this this viewing, uh, is Idris herself. Mm. And the idea of a a temporally transcendental entity, mm. which is forced to live linearly. Mm. So there's, there's the whole thing of, like, she's saying things that she's going to say in the future. Yeah. And she d- doesn't quite... It's she's finding it difficult to like wrap her head around a linear operation of time. Mm. Mm. Um. So I think, yeah, that to be honest, I'm happy enough with that in itself, and similar mm. ideas like that make mm. forming part of the uh, of what an episode is doing. Mm-hmm. Um. Especially, certainly when when they're executed well, mm. and when there's so many really clever ideas like there are in yeah. here put together. I mean, I take your point about like that there's a sense of postmodern self-referential cleverness. I don't really get that from this episode, Mm. which I Mm. think is because partly because the idea of like postmodern pastiche um, as defined by someone like uh, Frederick Jameson has a kind of emptiness at the heart of it. And for me, this is anything but because this is about I mean, you know, Neil Gaiman obviously grew up as a fan of the show. Yeah. And to an, ex- to an extent, this is his love letter to the show. Mm. This is the episode he always wanted to write. So I think even if all that's in there is one successful British fantasy stroke sci-fi author's mm. love for a sci-fi show, mm. I think there's still something uh, something in that. I think, this is something I just remembered
2: actually, maybe another reason why this might rub me up the wrong way, this episode, or it did, well, it did certainly the first time I watched it, The Living TARDIS idea is something I really like, Mm -hmm. but it's already been done. It was done, like, years before this. It was done in uh, the Eighth Doctor novels. Oh, okay. Um, It's not done as well. This is much better executed, and Mm -hmm. it's more Mm -hmm. interesting in the way it explores it. But I think that was something I was like, hmm, I don't... Yeah, I see what you mean.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, it's not as though the the show has any problem with cannibalising sort of spin-off material. Mm. I mean human nature Dalek yeah uh, that's e- true even the way world yeah. enough in time has parts of fittingly enough mm. bits of spare parts mm. in it mm. like there's there has always been a sense in which the the TV show is kind of the prime that will eat its offspring in that way <laughs> <laughs> um and like even to the point that like for instance with human nature you get mm. the author of that himself mm. rewriting his own work mm. and actually with Dalek as well mm. I think of it See that snake? The mark of the Corsair. Fantastic bloke. He had that snake as a tattoo in every regeneration. Didn't feel like himself unless he had the tattoo or herself a couple of times. Oh, she was a bad girl. I've always been curious to know and I would be very interested to find out. This information probably is out there because um, Gaiman has actually been like very candid about the process that he went through in writing this episode and writing Nightmare and Silver as well. Uh, which was probably a lot less happy for all concerned. I've always wanted to know where the Corsair came from. Mm. Mm. Did it come from Gamer or did it come from Martha? Because I could see it either way.
2: I would really like to know more about the Corsair. Yeah, That's I something that I really like in this episode and I would really like to see more of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess we ultimately get the some of the payoff from that mm. when we get um, Missy and then yeah, yeah, when we get, of course,
3: the, the 13th Doctor. Doctor.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I was... It's, it's such a offhand comment, but such an intriguing... It
0: opens up so much, yeah. But
1: then again, if they did it and it was bad, then I'd yeah. be so disappointed. So part of me just likes that little tantalising mm, tidbit yeah. of this Cause... exciting time lord that's out there somewhere.
0: Because on some level I can see this just being milked by Big Finish forever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it would make a really
1: good, like, say, a really good novel...
0: Mm. One novel, yeah, maybe. yeah. Oh, yeah. written or like, by Neil Gaiman, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or like yeah. maybe there could be an anthology of short stories following different time lords. Mm. Like mm, one of those
1: that stories. would be nice, but like, yeah, I, I feel like it, it's 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 such an exciting idea that if they did it and mm. it wasn't good, that I'd be really because I'm sometimes I sometimes I really don't like it when they turn an offhand comment into a whole
0: yeah episode,
1: mm. and part of me feels like part of me feels a little bit like maybe having River Song for more than the first two parts that she's in was maybe a mistake. I don't know if that's controversial, but I think sometimes when they spin out things that are interesting as like a one-off mm. comment or a one-off episode mm. into a huge narrative, then it can have like diminishing returns. Yeah. yeah. But I would like to know more about the Corsair as well. Mm, they do yeah. sound exciting. So
0: mm. I guess the reason I'm interested in knowing the provenance of that is like, exactly what you say, the fact that Missy comes in yeah. three years down the line. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm interested in knowing if it was Moffat is, I wonder, was he planning something like that at this point? And is this a way of, like, seeding that?
1: I mean, even if it was Gaiman, it might still be a way of him seeding Yeah, that. no, absolutely, like, yeah. Because he, yeah. even if he didn't come up with the original idea, if he was already thinking of having Missy, it might have been like, oh, yeah, we'll keep that line in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, I mean, I think the the other reason that line is worth highlighting for me autobiographically is because when this uh, episode came out uh I must confess I was one of those people who was like oh no we shouldn't have a, have a female doctor because like it would it would mess the character up it was it would ruin the continuity cuz I was a naive fool who ah. thought there was such a thing as doctor who continuity <laughs> um but the, and then once this episode aired once that line was out of the way I was like okay now there can be a female doctor
1: I was always very firmly of the opinion that there should be a female doctor but also that it should be me mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so half of that is still pending
0: yeah well we'll see
1: call me BBC
0: <laughs> uh, shall we leave that there then yeah I
1: think that that's good. okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay yeah. grand
0: uh, okay so that's it for part one of our look at series six then uh, so join us next time when we will have the immense pleasure of starting out with The Rebel Flesh The Almost People another universally beloved episode and until then I've been Ciarán
1: I've been
0: I've been Jacob thank you very much for this.